Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. Before we start, I would like to thank our listeners, sponsors, and supporters that have helped to make this podcast so successful. This podcast is being heard in all 50 states, all provinces of Canada, and 44 countries around the world. Once again, thank you all very much. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. Now, my guest today is Lori Singer. Lori is a licensed marriage and family therapist, board certified in applied behavior analysis, who leads the successful Camarillo, California-based Lori Singer Behavioral Services Incorporated. Motivated by her own personal tragedy, Lori has devoted her life to the field of mental health with a clear vision in mind to create a team approach for helping individuals resolve behavioral and other mental health issues by applying a unique combination of behavioral and cognitive behavior therapies. Lori has authored her first book titled You're Not Crazy, Living with Anxiety, Obsessions, and Fetishes, using case studies from her practice delivered in a digestible narrative format and including worksheets. This book was designed for the individual to take control of their lives. The goal of the book is to help those who suffer deeply from anxiety and mental health concerns especially those which have been exacerbated by the devastating pandemic. Lori is also an endurance athlete, having made running 100-mile races nearly routine and completing 28 ultramarathons of 31 miles or longer. She is a three-time Ironman competitor and in 2017 was recognized for her accomplishments as an inductee into the Ventura County Sports Hall of Fame. Welcome, Lori, to the podcast. Ron, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Looking so much uh, forward to uh, to doing this podcast with you. It's such an interesting topic, especially for uh, our audience, who we have a, a large uh, community, cancer community listening to this. And I understand 52% of cancer patients have anxiety or stress. Now, I've read your book, You're Not Crazy, Living with Anxiety, Obsessions, and Fetishes found it to be very informative. It is well-written for the layperson to comprehend the content of the book. So tell us, Lori, what prompted you to go into this line of study and work and some of your background that gives you firsthand uh, the understanding of the power and seemingly uncontrollable feeling of severe anxiety? Okay, so that's, uh, you know, it starts with my son being diagnosed, you know, with cancer and my husband and I living at children's hospital for two and a half months, he was diagnosed and died two and a half months later. Uh, so it was very rapid growing cancer and it was just devastating to our family. And I could see the other family members in the hospital who other children had, who had cancer and how it would, it just, you know, it ruined lives, it ripped families apart. And we were very fortunate that my husband's family was very close to our family. My dad was very supportive. We had a lot of help and friends, but not every family had that. And back when my son had cancer, it was like, you know, your son passed away and then you left and that was it. There was really no support groups. There was nothing. And so I felt like I really wanted to help these families and I wanted to give back and do something. I also wanted to do something for the other families who had siblings because our daughter was five at the time and 
we had relatives taking care of her, but she wanted to spend time with us at the hospital. So she would come, there'd be nothing for her to do. There was a playroom that had maybe like a checkerboard with five pieces or Mr. Potato Head with one eye and a mouth. And so when my son passed away, several things happened. Uh, one thing was I wanted to help the families. Secondly, I read a book, um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in that book, it said, if you have a child that dies or somebody that you love, try to, to keep their memory alive by doing something, you know, giving to a charity or whatever that might be. So since I ran, I asked the running community if we could just do a fun run. And if they wanted to donate money, then they can donate it to Children's Hospital in his name. This year will be our 36th annual run in Jacob's name. And all the money is donated to the Child Life Program, which we pretty much started. They had nothing there. And now they have uh, computers for the kids. It's a doctor-free zone. They have therapists working with the siblings and the children to help them deal with the either having to have to lose a loved one, a sibling, or just living with a sick sibling. So that was one thing. Then I thought, well, I can't go back to school, even though I want to help families at the time, because I didn't realize that I had a learning disability along with ADHD. And I was a horrible student. I barely graduated high school. I had to move to a different state, Ron, as I told you, just to yeah, graduate. Yeah, we're talking about that, yeah. Yeah, because I didn't want to disappoint my father who raised us. But what happened was one of the, um, the cross-country coach from the local college wanted to recruit me onto the cross-country team. And I kept saying no, I kept saying no. And then after Jacob's death, I thought, oh, what the heck, I, I guess I'll do it. And what I did, Ron, was I applied my strategies that I used for running races to studying. And it worked. I ended up graduating a junior college valedictorian, attending UCLA, getting a master's, getting a license, getting a second degree with a you know, national board certification, having my own company. This, I never thought any of this was possible and helping so many families along the way. You found your purpose. I did. You, you turned that pain into purpose. I yeah. did. Yeah, you really did. Now you use a, combi uh, a unique combination of two therapies to help with anxiety, cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral therapy. Can you tell us about each of these? Yes. So interestingly enough, when I was in graduate school, they had, I'd never gone to therapy <laughs> and I wanted to be a therapist. But the reason <laughs> why is because I knew that behavioral therapy worked because I was working as a behavior interventionist at the time. And they had told us in the graduate school, if you get 10 hours of regular therapy, we'll count that as a hundred hours towards your, you know, thousand hours that you have to get. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to a therapist. <laughs> yeah. So I went, to, I went to a therapist and I told her about my childhood living with a mother who was addicted to drugs and alcohol, how she left our family. And then I had a son that died of cancer. And I, I, I told this to her in a matter of fact tone. And she looked at me shell shocked. And she said, you know, this wasn't, these things that happened to you weren't really normal and you're going to have to learn how to process it. Well, that stirred up a bunch of emotions that I had always hid inside me. I learned from a very young age not to show my emotions because it doesn't do 
anybody any good when you're living with an alcoholic parent to show your emotions. You learn not to do that. So once I started dealing with it, she introduced me to cognitive behavioral therapy. And what that means is how do you change those negative thoughts inside your head to something positive, if that makes sense. Um, You know, we have this looping that goes around because when I started to go to therapy and, and realize, oh my gosh, I really have experienced trauma in my life and not realized it, I started to get panic attacks. I couldn't drive the freeway. I, I was so scared I couldn't go on the freeway, which I, which was impossible in California. As you know, everything is so spread out. Sure. And in my job, I had to drive from place to place. So she told me about the deep breathing, changing my negative thoughts and, and, and all of this, but I needed something more. So in my line of work as a behavior interventionist, behavior therapy is changing your environment. How do you change your environment to change the behavior? And at that time, I was working with young kids, and it was like a baseball game. You get to first base, you stop, think about what happened, go to second, is it safe, go to third, and then go home. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe I can use like a signal, you know, just a signal from a traffic light and use that and carry it with me. And so I have the visual, okay, stop, I'm going to stop the negative thought, yellow, I'm going to make a choice, I'm going to think of something positive, I can do this go start your deep breathing. And it worked. I was able to go on the freeways again. I was able to get control of those negative thoughts because really anxiety uh, is the negative thoughts of the, what if is going to happen? What if I can't drive? What if I have another panic attack? So the cognitive part is how do we change those negative irrational thoughts that go in our head? Lori, when is anxiety considered normal and when does it become problematic right so when does it become debilitating when do you right when do you avoid driving on the freeway when do you avoid seeing friends um well in my book i give the analogy well when it's affecting your personal life and relationships when it's affecting your social life when it's affecting your school or work and in my book i give uh, an analogy of uh you know, you have your favorite coffee shop that you go to and you you go out to get your coffee and a car stops just short of hitting you. And you think, oh, my gosh, that was very scary. So the next day when you are going to go to the coffee shop, you think best not to go to that one. What if somebody hits me? So then you go to a different coffee shop that isn't as favorite, you know, the favorite coffee shop, but you get your coffee. And then you think, well, my gosh, this could happen even here, because what if I get hit on this side of the street? So here you have that looping of irrational thoughts. The next day you say to yourself, you know what? I'm not even going to get coffee. I'm just going to stay indoors. And and then I'll just for, you know, I just will not get my coffee anymore. It's not that important. I might get killed. And then following that, it could be where you don't even leave your house anymore. When when is therapy a strong option to consider or should ind- individuals try to deal with these issues on their own? I think that, as I mentioned before, when it starts to really affect your performance at work, your believing in yourself that you can do something. And when what happens with anxiety is it starts off very small and then it kind of grows. It takes on a life of its own. And it becomes more and more. So now it's now, okay, if we use a coffee shop example, 
Now it's not just getting coffee where you're, you're afraid to go out of the house, but now it's like, maybe I should call in sick to work because, you know, I could get in an accident just walking to my car and it's affecting your relationships because you've decided not to go out with your friends because something bad might happen. You don't know what, again, it's the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? It's all these scenarios that we play in our head and we yeah. know that they're not, we know they're not rational, but we can't stop thinking about them. Now, are there trends in what your clients are seeking help for in accordance, say, with the issues that might be playing out in society right now? Initially, with the pen, you know, when the lockdown first happened, I had a lot of parents. Let me take a moment out of the podcast to tell you about a unique product, Sour Honey. Sour Honey is produced in a small, desolate area in the Brazilian jungle located in the Amazon mountains. Scientists believe that the honey from this region is so pure because it was never tampered with for thousands of years, partially because it is not mass-produced in large quantities, unlike regular honey. Therefore, sour honey is considered to be one of the rarest honeys on earth. Sour honey has brought a premium quality, all-natural Brazilian honey to market. The product is filled with several micronutrients and antioxidants that are perfect for everyday use and lives on the go. Honey from Brazil is best known for its purity, taste, and floral sources. This is a high-quality organic honey with guaranteed freshness. Sour honey is immune-boosting and energizing and does not contain any added or artificial ingredients like artificial sweeteners that are found in other products. Sour Honey is a great option for those looking for a complete and energizing nutritional support to perform better in their everyday life. Sour Honey can be used in making honey tea, desserts, and in a variety of smoothies. There is no expiration date for this product. Sour Honey should not be given to children under the age of one. Please note, results may vary from person to person with the usage and consumption of Sour Honey and is not guaranteed. Consult your doctor for medical advice. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. For ordering information, testimonials, contact information to ask questions, go to www.sourhoney.com. When ordering, please use the code 50SOUR to be sure you get $50 off the already discounted price. Keep your immune system at 100%. Information pertaining to the product will be listed in the podcast notes. That were bringing their kids to see me because of they weren't able to socialize. And this really affected the younger population. They were just so anxiety ridden. And I think some of it too, after talking to the parents, the parents were anxiety ridden as well. So I think some of this was because of their parents' reaction to what was happening. So I work, you know, I like to work with the entire family or loved ones or whoever's involved in the, in the individual's life, because I think it's important, their behavior affects everybody in the family. And so it's really important to get the other people's perspectives and to have them part of the behavioral plan to make that change. Now, later on, it seemed like I had more college cases, college kids coming to see me. It's interesting, the trend that it took, actually, it was first, it was younger kids because of the socialization. Then it was college age and like seniors in high school. And that was again, socialization, but it also had to do with wearing the masks. That was a big thing for them for okay. that age. Yeah. Some of them felt very strongly about wearing it. Some of them 
wanted to take it off, but were afraid what others would say when they went into like a Starbucks or coffee bean or wherever they went, they didn't want to get scrutinized either. So there was a lot of that. And then parents who of course have more than one child, they're working and they have anxiety because they're trying to keep up with the online classes. What do they do? Now you, you throw into the mix a family that has a special needs child. They're not getting their speech therapy. They're not getting their behavioral services. They're not getting their social skill services. How, how can they sit in front of a computer and really have um, a quality education? It, it set a lot of people back. It created a lot of anxiety. And um, I do think one thing that happened was that more people felt comfortable reaching out to get help. And I, I don't know why that is, but I, I did find that. Which leads me into my, my my other question is 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 uh, you know what has been the impact of COVID on our children and teens, but how can the parents uh, help them navigate through it? What can they do? I think they the parents have to be very aware that their child or children can sense if they're feeling anxious, if they're fearing you know feeling fearful, if they talk you have to be very careful what you say in front of your kids you they may it may look like they're watching a tv show but they can hear what you're saying and that will come back later on if you're having a disagreement if you're talking about whether it's vaccinations whether it's shots whether it's the economy whether it's anything political you should really go into another room if possible because they are listening the walls have ears yes that is correct now you have a great athletic resume. Tell us about athletes' anxiety. What well, that's you inter- yeah. I think um, I, you know I had I never thought about it until one of the local stores wanted to sponsor me, and then I felt all this pressure. Right, you know that I, I had to perform at a certain level, and it was okay for a while, but then I didn't like it anymore, and I just wanted to do it for myself, and that's when I when I um, said, you know, thank you, but no thank you. Cause they said, we'll pay for your entry. We'll, you know, do this, we'll do that. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. But then I thought, oh, this is a lot of pressure. I don't know if I want to do that. That is a lot of anxiety to put on. And, and at the time I was still going to school and I had my, you know, my daughter, my, uh, who was getting older. So there was, it wasn't just an athlete. It's all these other aspects of my life. Have you run across uh, any of your, patients uh be have, have you had any uh in the athletic field I, i'm always curious because you you hear about football players and basketball play, all these professional players even the college i'm sure high school i mean there's got to be a lot of anxiety uh going on i know, did to, to, in to fact perform. it's funny you mentioned that now i'm thinking back i had a client whose dad was a professional football player and his son was an amazing athlete baseball but And he was a senior in high school, but this kid had horrible anxiety. I mean, he had, he had the type of anxiety where it was almost OCD anxiety because he'd be driving and he'd look in his mirror and then he'd go straight. Then he'd look at his mirror, he'd go straight. He'd get out of his car. He had to have to go back and check that he locked it. Then he'd walk away and he'd have to go back and check if he locked it. So this was impacting his ability to play 
effective baseball. And, and, you know, scouts were coming out to look at him. So his dad was very concerned about that. And of course he's a teenager. He's not going to listen to his dad. Right. (laughs) Right. So, um, and he lost his self-confidence. That's another thing that happens with anxiety. You know, you lose your self-confidence because you don't believe that you have control over your thoughts. And that's what I try to instill in my clients is that you actually do have the ability to stop those negative thoughts. And if you follow this plan, it will work. And so in, in um, just getting people to believe in their themselves and working on the behavioral plan and following it, he was able to, he did actually did a good job. He got recruited to, I think the, I think he went to USC is where he went for baseball. And okay. I, you know, my, my goal is I'm, I'm the type of therapist where, I want to give you the tools that you need to get you from this stuck position to where you can move forward and utilize these tools throughout your life. I don't want you a lifelong patient. That's not my goal. I want you to, to, it's very solution focused and time limited if possible. That's good. That's, that's very good. Now, what are the ways to identify the triggers that cause emotional distress and the steps to overcome them? Well, with my type of therapy, um, what I like to, what I do, and actually this is in my book as well, is I give data sheets to the individuals and to the family members. So the data sheet would be, let's identify what those triggers are. Exactly. We need to know what the triggers are. And people will say to me, well, I don't have any triggers. I don't know what they are. But it's interesting because once you start writing it down, it's called ABC data. So it's antecedent behavior and consequence. So I tell my clients, and you want, I want the date and time. So I tell my clients, write down the behavior first. What, what my heart started beating fast. I got very confused. I couldn't breathe. I had shortness of breath. Well, what happened just before you started to get those feelings or symptoms? What, what was the antecedent to that behavior? And sometimes I'll say, well, I, I started thinking about my math exam, or I was thinking about how that car almost hit me or whatever it is that you're thinking about just before. And that was a, what was a consequence of your behavior? Did your family members say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll go get the coffee for you. Or were they saying, um, you know what? Just stay home from school today if you don't feel good. So looking at the antecedent and the consequences, I wanna take a proactive approach. I wanna figure out how we can stop the behavior. How do we, how do we interrupt the trigger? before it happens, if that makes sense. You know, how can we stop it before it happens? And right. a consequence is who's who's giving into you? What are they doing? Because they're not, they're, they're adding to the problem. They're making it worse. And so that's why family members have to really be coached on, no, he can't stay home from school. He has to go no matter what. This is a part of uh, learning of what he has to do. Um, my plan, once we find it and making that proactive, approach to try to stop it before it happens entails a lot of um, a lot of like a motivational story that I write. And that's kind of just like a mantra to set the day. Uh, I can do this, you know, my, you know, for example, my name is Ron. Um, I have, uh, I'm, I don't know if you, your listeners know what's going on with you, but if you have some type of a illness or I can use myself. Oh yeah, um, no, they do. They do. Okay, so, and or if I use myself, my name is Lori, um, I have ADHD and a learning disability, but this does not define who I am. 
Right. I have anxiety, I know, or I have ADHD. It doesn't define who I am. I can overcome this. And this is what I will do. The next time I start to have shortness of breath, I'll remind myself I can do this. I've done harder things before. I'll take some deep breaths in through my nose, out through my mouth, and I'll move forward with my day. Right. That's a short version, but it's just kind of to give that person the confidence. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, describe to us what anticipatory anxiety is and how does it relate to issues out of our, out of our control? <laughs> so I think anticipatory anxiety is, it's almost like you haven't actually bridged towards full-blown panic attacks yet, but you're on the verge because you're anticipating that you're going to have a panic attack. And so you've already made these accommodations for yourself to kind of, you know, work around it. But again, you're avoiding a situation which could be debilitating for your life. You're going to miss out on so many things. Right. So anticipatory anxiety is just, it's almost the same, but you're avoiding the anxiety itself. You're avoiding, you know, whether it's going to that coffee shop. And so now you're not going to have anxiety anymore, you know, or you're avoiding going to the, going to work. It's, it's similar, but it's not full blown yet. But when you're, when you're uh, afraid to do one thing, it probably leads into a lot of other things too, right? That's exactly right, Ron. It's exactly yeah. what happens. Yeah. Now, what, what should individuals who have never been to therapy understand about uh, your, your unique process? When people come to see me, a lot of times um, they'll, they think that they always want to know, am I the worst case? Or have you ever seen any case like mine? And I think to myself, okay, I've been doing this for over 20 years. You are nothing like my worst case. But they want to know, they want to so I try to normalize what yeah. it is that they're going through. And I also let them know, um, typically when you go into a therapist's office, you practice, you might, you talk to them, you might practice some deep breathing, they'll tell you to go home and meditate. Mine is much different. It's very hands on. So I'm, I feel like I'm a detective in the beginning, gathering information, writing things down. But you're also have to be very active in it. You I will give you the data sheets, I show you how to fill them out. I make you accountable, you come back into my office, we analyze the data together, ask a lot of questions. From that data, I put together a binder and that binder is going to have your treatment plan in that plan. You'll have a motivational story. You might have some worksheets. What uh, worksheets would be thought versus reality. And that would be taking data on what was the, you know, what was the thought that you had in your opinion, what should have happened and what is the reality of the situation? Uh, and I can, I'll go into that more in a minute, but, and it'll also have a weekly schedule of how many times you have to practice your strategies in the binder and a few other things that might have. You take that home, every session you bring it back and I look to see if you've actually been doing what you're supposed to be doing. Typically when you, like I said, you go into see a therapist, you practice in their office, which is a clinical setting and you don't practice in other settings. I want this generalized in every setting. So wherever you're going, you can use these strategies. You know, which brings me to another question that just popped up in my head. What 
with this unique process you use, what has been your success rate? It's very high. Very, I mean, you know, some people, and in my book, I say, some people just aren't ready and don't want to do the work. You know, I mean, that's a reality because it is work. This is sure. you know, behavior therapy is how do you change your environment to change the behavior? Yeah. And some you people say they want to get help, but they really don't want to change the, it's like, you know, the same, it's, I don't want to use AA, but I guess I will Alcoholics Anonymous. You go to a meeting and you have to run the 12 steps. If you don't run the 12 steps, you're not going to get sober. So uh, this is, you have to do the work. You have to do the work. Yeah. And it's funny because I have a client who I gave him all the material. He got a planner because a planner is very important. If you have ADD, you have to have a planner where everything's written down. Got him a whiteboard Monday through Sunday. He writes on that. He has a visual of the signal plan he put up. He has, you know, stay calm, think positive. Those are the visuals that's changing your environment, right? Right. And I said to him last week, I said, now I need for you to take a picture of your house and I want to see where everything is set up. I want you to take a picture of your planner because you didn't bring it in and you were supposed to and take a picture of the whiteboard. It took him a week and I texted him yesterday. I said, I need to see everything. You need to send me a picture. I didn't think he was going to do it. I got it. I got the pictures today. Everything set up. His planner's filled out. That's great. So it, yeah, so it's making him accountable. Yeah. I mean, I don't want I don't want him to waste his money and I don't want to waste my time. You right. know, if, if you're not ready to do the work, it's okay. Come back later. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you're you're doing your job and you want to see success. That's I can right. definitely understand it. What are some of the Lori, what are some of the misconceptions people out there uh, may have about going to therapy? What are, what are some yeah. of them? I think one of the main misconceptions are if they talk about it, problem solved. That's not the case. You know, if that takes more, I mean, it feels good to get it off your chest, I'm sure, you know, but you're in my office because you are stuck. You're stuck. Something in your life is stopping you from moving forward with your life. You have a choice. You can either work with me and follow the behavioral plan. And of course, there can be adjustments along the way. I'm not saying it's written in stone. If you find that you don't like a sentence in the motivational story, let's change it. I want want you to feel comfortable with it. But you have to make a choice. You're either going to do it and move forward with your life, or you're just going to stand there and not go anywhere. Okay. Lori, what was the catalyst uh, for you to write your book? And and what do you hope the readers take away from the book? One of the reasons why I wrote it was because for the last, I don't even know how many years, several, several years, um, physicians send me a lot of clients. I have dermatologists that send me the skin pickers, you know, uh, in my book, it's yeah. And the diagnostic statistical manual is referred to as the OCD behavior of excoriation and really it's skin picking, but it can be horrible. I mean, disfiguring, awful, awful. And um, so I've gotten a lot of dermatologists, a lot of pediatricians whose parents can't handle their kids, uh, just all sorts of different um, colleagues in the area. And they say, you know, Laura, you should really write a book. Your stuff really works. And so finally, a few years ago, when I like to set goals for myself, kind of like running a race, right? Uh, So I thought, well, finally, when I turn 60, I'm going to write this book. And I turned 60. I started writing it. The pandemic happened, and then I started to see even more cases of anxiety. Or, or 
I don't know if I saw more or they were just, like I said before, people were more socially accepting of anxiety because of it. Everything was heightened. Yeah. So it was more common to and talk about it. Like, I like what you said in the beginning, uh, Ron, that you said that the book was written for the lay person. Yeah. Because that's what it was. It's interesting. When I gave my book to a few professionals, um, and they who I've worked with, and they're the ones that wrote in my book about, you know, the type of therapy that I do. I gave it to one clinician and she said it wasn't clinical enough that she wasn't going to write something in it because it wasn't clinical enough. And I said, well, that's good because it's not going to be used to teach a student about psychology. It's written for somebody who needs help or a family member who doesn't know what to do with this other individual. That's what it's written for. Yeah. Which makes sense. And that's what we need more and more. You know, we, we don't need uh, in-depth uh, academic, academic, books that nobody understands the terminology you know they have to google every other word that's that's not that's not going to work now for those out there with anxiety issues or those uh that have friends or loved ones who would like uh to help them what takeaway words do you have out there uh, for our audience what's a good takeaway your takeaway word i would say that you're not alone okay i mean i think that is the biggest misconception when people come into my office, they're like rock bottom in a way, you know, um, and they feel so alone and they just feel stuck that there's no hope. And there is hope. This, this will really work. This combination, these two combinations together uh, work extremely well. And I think they, I think that's why when they come to see me that I let them know There's so many other people. You're not the first one that's come in uh, with skin picking. You're not the first one that's come in with such horrible OCD behavior that you can't go to sleep. You try to go to bed and two hours later, you're still going downstairs and shutting the refrigerator five times and turning the lights off and on 10 times. You're not alone or you can't leave the bathroom because you say, did I, you know, did I wash my face? I think I did, but now I need to wash it again. I mean, this is, it, it happens all the time. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I and I don't know how to ask this question, but do you do you help people only in the office setting or say the people out there? I mean, this this podcast goes, you know, all over the world. Uh do you help people virtually as well? I do. And I also go into some people's homes to help them. Okay, because... so you can so you can help people and no matter where they live. Well, I'm how... not gonna drive across the state, but no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying virtually. You can, oh yeah. It yeah, doesn't I matter where they're it doesn't matter where they're contacting you from. No, I had uh who's that people? One's in New Mexico, I think one's in Texas, one was in Arizona. So they actually got my book through friends or relatives and they contacted me and I was able to help them. And one individual in particular really struck me because he had been suffering from OCD. I think how old is he? He is, must be 70. And he tried to get help when he was 25. And he went to a professor at the university he was attending and the professor said he couldn't help him. And so he lived with this OCD his entire life. And he read my book and working together, it was life-changing, but he actually cried to me and 
he said, why couldn't I have done this sooner? Why didn't anybody tell me about this sooner? Which is, you know, we can't, there's no reason why anything happens to anybody. You and I know that, Ron, right? Yeah, With the rest right. of the listeners. But he was, he's able to be with his grandchildren, enjoy his life more now. He still goes through all of the behavioral plans together. But um, it's just, it is sad, you know, that people don't get the help that they need sooner, but there's nothing you can do. Which leads me to my last question. How can people contact you? They can look at my website. There's two different website, websites with their link. They can either look at lauriesingerbehavioral.com or you're not crazy book.com. Okay. So that's lauriesingerbehavioral.com. And what was that last one? You're not crazy. It's you're not crazy book. No, you're not. Yeah. You're not crazy book.com. See, I. Oh, you're not crazy book.com. Okay. Yeah. So for everybody out there, let's. Lori Singer behavioral.com or you're not crazy book.com. And, and this will, I'll list this in the podcast notes for everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Lori, for, for appearing on the podcast and, and sharing this important information with us. I wish you all the best in your endeavors uh, to help those with mental health issues, comments and suggestions to the podcast. You can email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group and page. Uh, the group is growing very nicely. It's in the thousands. It's a wrap with rap. We're on Instagram. That's growing very, uh, very well. We're in the thousands in that. It's a wrap with rap podcast. We're on YouTube. All the episodes on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap, the podcast uncut. Thanks everyone for listening. And for now, it's a wrap.